Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hi, everyone. I'm Larry Wiesneck, co-president of Cowan & Company, and welcome to our podcast. As always, I'm here with my good friend and former colleague, David Erickson, senior fellow at the Wharton Business School, and my colleague, Grant Miller, Cowan's head of capital markets. The three of us last sat down to discuss the state of the capital markets at the end of the third quarter. And now with 2023 fully underway, we're ready to not only review Q4 of 2022, but also take a look ahead. So David, once again, I turn the table over to you. Great, thanks, Larry. Last year on our podcast, we started with the question, where do you think we are now and how are you advising companies to prepare for the near term? Obviously, we seem to be closer to the end than the beginning, unless you're a Jets fan, Larry, as uh, we talked about a few months ago. I don't know, Grant, if you have some thoughts on that bet that we talked about, I guess, a few months ago. So, Larry, what's your, what's your summation now that we're recording is actually just after the divisional series. So now after both your Jets and my Patriots were didn't get close to sniffing the playoffs, what's your, what are your thoughts? I'm looking at my, my, my feedback of the quote from the last time, and I'm not feeling great about what I said then. Next year, uh, you know, hope springs eternal is the way I think of it. We're a quarterback away, Grant. I don't know what to, what okay. to say. As I, and by the way, as we saw in the, um, the playoffs, again, it's all about the QB play, right? And so uh, the Super Bowl is going to be great. I think there's it's two exciting teams with two great quarterbacks. And um, I'm just looking forward to once again for five decades running. Um, I'm watching at home, just hoping for a good game. So I'm trying, I'm actually trying not to gloat because I have nothing to gloat about this time. In fact, I'm a little sheepish because the next time we record one of these, the baseball season will be underway. And that's where the Red Sox. Pitchers and, yeah. and, and, and Dave, what we need is not a quarterback, but we need, well, we might need a quarterback. One we long need, ball hitter. We need pitchers. Yeah, I, I noticed that. Pitchers and, and, and you need hitters. All you yeah. really need is guys to play the field, some hitters, and we some need nine players. players that can play the field. But other than that, it's not a big deal. But it, okay. it, well, but, but it does bring us back to to capital markets. Okay. And, 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 and where we are. So so I think David, when we we talked a year ago, uh, in particular, we were anticipating that the Fed was going to have to start to get aggressive uh, around what appeared to be um, impending, you know, longer term inflation risks and. Uh, well, I think we're in a very different place today. I mean, we were talking then, you know, what will the hikes be? Will they be aggressive? Will they get ahead of it, et cetera? And I think, um, you know, here we are with what has been um, over those last 12 months, uh, historic in terms of the amount of increases uh, in terms of speed uh, and aggregate amount. And so I think that the only way to look at this is that we're closer to the end of th- at least this version of Fed rate um, increases doesn't mean there won't be another that there won't be a pause at some point, and that we might then find ourselves for different elements of the the cycle that we wouldn't see another regime of rate increases. But I think we're towards the back end. I don't know if we're at you know seventy five percent, eighty percent. The the certainly the the uh, bond market telling us that we're pretty close to the the end of that. I will just say though that I think the the Fed has more than ever before been using their um, their words to tell us what they intend to do and, and that they've been following with it, meaning following their words. 
And I think we should take them very seriously about this, which is they are going to err on the side of greater caution uh, rather than less. Meaning I think they're likely to tighten one or two more times than the market wants them to. And that will probably end up with you know, a Fed fund rate that's a bit higher than um, where the market will need it to be. I think they'd rather err on that side um, and get get inflation under control and then quickly release um, and, you know, and come back down again in terms of rates rather than continuously be behind and find themselves in the situation we had in the 80s. I think they're focusing much more on what happened in the late 70s and 80s than they are anything since then. And so that would be my my focus thing. We're towards the yeah, seventh inning for using the baseball analogy. So, so Larry, uh, let's talk about the, the, the market in the context of last year was difficult. So for a company today who needs to finance, they didn't finance last year and they probably need to finance the next six months. What's the advice today? I would say that we find ourselves again in a theme, David, that you and I have talked about on these podcasts for multiple years, which is um, we're in a world of haves and have nots. Those who either were long cash going in or were very aggressive to make sure that they um, were conservative on their spends and that they maybe even raised capital in what was a um, you know, increasingly hostile environment, but yet they did it. They have the ability to control their destiny and they're in one camp, in the camp of the haves. I think those who <clears throat> went into the last 12 to 18 months uh, potentially um, slightly undercapitalized um, and then didn't get in front of it um, are finding themselves in a more defensive posture. And so we, I think when we look at the world, we think of it as kind of defensive versus, versus those who can be offensive. Doesn't mean when you can, can be offensive that you should be, but those are two different camps and there's different answers for both. So Grant, why don't I turn it over to you because you obviously spend more time on those daily conversations than I do. So a little bit of the maybe bottoms up in terms of what we're talking to clients about. I think it goes into really three categories of thoughts. One is plan, two is be ready, and three is be in the moment. So I think that in terms of the, the planning, um, that's contingency planning. That is both management teams and boards for good scenarios and ones that aren't so rosy. We saw a lot of that going through the through last year, where uh, companies have looked ways to, to cut burn or change programs that are if they're you know in, a, in the biotech uh, scenarios, where they'd be able to extend runways. So the six months, Dave, you noted, I actually think is quite a bit longer, albeit. People are looking for two in the investor side, two years of runway of capital, where that might have been, you know, a year or to, to 18 months. So I think planning on both the upside and the downside. Second is be ready. So with regard to finding investors where they where you might not be able to see them, we go back and look at proprietary data that we have with, with all aspects of our trading activities and our corporate access activities to make sure that we're targeting the, the correct investors. So, and that be ready is also relevant to what's happening in the market. The beginning of last year to the end of last year, the first and second six months, biotech issuance, for example, doubled from the, from the first to the second half. And so when folks couldn't get deals on the, in the first half, they had to be ready um, to be able to execute those in the second half. And that actually even was more dramatic in the last two months, November, December, where the markets did open for other issuers as well. We, we did 15 book run transactions, seven on a lead basis in those last two months of the year, 
more than any other firm. And I think it was a lot about because we were we were ready with our clients to to really jump in. And the last advice is be in the moment. So maybe a couple of case studies. Um, one of our really good and longtime clients is Horizon Therapeutics. They have been recently uh, was announced to be purchased by Amgen. We've done many, many transactions with them over, over many years. In 2012, I think it was the second or third deal after their IPO that we that we led for them, they had a really tough deal to do. Uh, they did a, a about a 30% discount deal, raising $90 million. At the time, their market cap was about 150, if I recall correctly, so that they could get to the next stage because and 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 get and continue to develop. That was a hard pill from the swallow, but that was the one they needed to to be able to to get to this stage, where they're 110 dollars a share and they're a 30 billion dollar acquisition by Amgen. When I congratulated the CEO on the acquisition, who's been there all all this time, he reflected on that moment of the be in the moment and and what you need to get done so that you can live to see another day. And then with regard to what maybe more recently, we did a transaction for a company called Aspen Aerogels, where other bank, they had a very large CapEx need of, they had announced a $575 million and a 500 million market cap, which seems like an impossible task. They actually tried in the middle of the year to do a dual tranche common and convertible with other banks and that deal failed. Or they went to the market, their stock was down 40% and they pulled the transaction. What we try to do is get them to, to piece deal parts of those that deal together. And so at the end of the day, what they did towards the end of last year is they used the ATM we had in place with them as one piece. They, they were able to bring in a strategic investor in Coke Industries. They were able to get a credit backing from one of their customers. And so the very last piece was the equity to fill in this, this, this um, kind of last piece of what they really needed. And we launched a $200 million deal and priced almost $300 million. And so those pieces of either, you know, nobody likes their price potentially at the moment, but to get what you need to get done and find your ways through the capital markets, I think that is the last piece. And I did mention that last case study of uh, at the market uh, programs or ATMs. Last year, we saw our clients use that extremely effectively to be able to bridge gaps to the next time that they can have a broader financing window to be able to go out. So um, maybe those are the three components of the of the advice we're giving clients. Thanks, Grant. Since we, we've had a nascent IPO market for the last year, and hopefully things will improve this year, what do you think will be the types of companies that will come first? How will that market develop? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one first. So nascent is like a euphemism, Dave. Like that's, a, that's the nicest thing you can say about the IPO market. Obviously, we're off the highs of 21 where everything was working. And then we hit 22 when, when the volumes were are even 50% lower than the, like the 10-year averages and medians. And so what I think is going to come back first is um, companies that are lower beta, companies that, that have really good growth, but also have some stability to them. And actually, the IPO market in the backdrop has been growing. The, the, the filings have both confidential filings that we're seeing and hearing about, as well as the public ones are certainly growing. The biggest part of the IPO market has been, over the last number of years, the biotech market and healthcare market. What we're seeing there is still a market that's not functioning perfectly. 
those deals really need to be fully subscribed by existing investors to give new investors interest to be able to come in and be essentially a safe investment in those IPOs. We haven't necessarily crossed that threshold yet, but I do think those opportunities are going to come. I also think there are some signposts to what, what, what could end up working. The first piece is existing public companies need to be able to get financed more seamlessly at reasonable discounts, and then very importantly, make investors money. So we're starting to turn the corner there, but unless and until follow-ons and IPOs actually make investors money, there's gonna be some reticence. The Renaissance IPO index last year was down over 50%. Who's gonna invest in IPOs when, when, that, when that asset class is, isn't, isn't really working? So we still have some ways to go, but there certainly are, are avenues and, and companies that will be able to, to go there. Actually, I'll, and I'll put out one very successful IPO, which I think is a, uh, potentially a, a trendsetter, which is Mobileye. So it was one of the largest you know, tech IPOs last year. An interesting case study because uh, Intel um, had you know, taken it private about $15 billion of value uh, and then was going to re-IPO it. And the rumors were very high valuations. They ended up taking it back out at about the same price as they took it private in 17. And so since then, what's happened, the, the, the stock went from about 15 billion of, or 16 billion of, uh, of value to 29 since it went public. And so basically what they did, what Intel did, and this might be a sign to what uh, we'll, we'll see um, sponsors be able to come back to the IPO market, is be able to sell a modest uh, size of the overall entity. In this case, it's only 6% of Mobileye that got sold in that IPO at a price that actually does make investors some money. Gives them that level of confidence to come in and support the company, the IPO, and then going forward. And now at a 30 billion, Intel's looking pretty smart because they sold a modest piece and they have the capital and they have the backing with a broad institutional owner base. It's, a, it's, I would say, a little bit of a, maybe of an um, un-Bill Gurley approach to the market, but I do think that's where we are with, regard, with respect to getting the IPO market reopened in a positive way. I think that the, what Grant just described about the IPO market is actually equally applicable to any market uh, that either shuts down or comes close to shutting down in a difficult environment, which is that the, the first deals that get done have to get done well. And for that to occur, you need to have some form of an inducement for investors. And when those perform well, then others can come at tighter discounts. And again, when I say discounts, I mean, you know, whatever the market is. In the IPO market, it's to fully distributed. Obviously, as we think about the bond market, it might be where reference rates are, et cetera. But I think that's what 2023 is going to be across many of the capital markets, which is a, a, a need to see those who move first be a bit more conservative and therefore provide a bit more incentive. And then over time, uh, we'll see tightening. And the only other thing that I would say is with regard to the IBO market is we're taking a book out of Dave, your old Lehman Brothers book, which is we're doing a lot of IPO boot camps with companies and the management team so that maybe it's not in six months, maybe it is in a year, 18 months or further, but being able to be prepared for those moments um, on the IPO is really what we're thinking about now. We've talked about 
the IPO market. We've talked about kind of changes in terms of the market environment. This week, we're, we're actually recording this before the Fed announces their latest rate change or not rate change. But clearly, there's been significant uh, rate rises in the last nine months or so. It's obviously had an impact on the debt markets. How are you seeing the middle market sponsor market back market today? So with regard to the what we're seeing in the, the sponsor markets, and it's not just middle market sponsors. Uh, it's also large sponsor transactions. While the syndicated market has been very, very quiet, although there is some rebounding in 2023, they've been going to the private markets. And so that is both with regard to middle market sponsors as well as large deals. So both Toma Bravo and Advent, for example, when there are two recent transactions, went to the exclusively to the private market to do deals that were billions of dollars each. And so I think that is a trend that is has been and will continue to persist. And that maybe the broader scope of that is if you look back at a decade ago, the private uh, credit markets were about 2% of the overall financing markets. Today, they're 20 to 25%. And so while the syndicated markets uh, are, um, being, are pushing back a bit, there are other avenues to be able to get transactions done for sure. So in the last couple of podcasts, we've been talking about some of the deals that have been done in the private market and given the market turbulence that we had in, uh, in 2022. Can you give an update on some of the types of transactions recently done and expected in the near term? The last question, before, even before I go there, I was just thinking about some other deals that we're, we've been seeing and hearing about are actually sponsors, particularly middle market sponsors, are doing transactions with all equity, waiting for the financing markets to be able to come and then, and then going in. And, and going through the financing. And so that's an extreme example, but I would say over-equitizing is another you know, trend so that to avoid some of the, the, that, that piece. Yeah, so may, maybe just on the, on the, on the broader uh, private market. So we, you know, we look at it, um, everything private. So we call that effort our private capital solution. So it's everything from equity to debt. Um, maybe I'll just, I'll, um, uh, you know, I'll start on the, the equity side. And so last year was a tricky year. We did about uh, about a dozen private equity placement transactions between about 40 and $200 million of proceeds. I think the trend there is that they're taking longer because when you have a valuation reset in the public market, private market valuations tend to be sticky because you don't mark to market every day. And so the boards don't see the value of their true comps and what that really looks like. And so they have become longer and, and tougher. It's particularly hard. And we have about this, we, we have over that number of live deals in the market right now, finding a new lead investor to come in and put a stake in the ground around evaluation, around terms, and frankly about expectations uh, and, and, and looking at it from a, from a fresh perspective. So more structure, Longer terms, uh, longer time to, to of completion, and harder to get real real leadership. That doesn't mean that deals are not getting done. However, so we're able to still able to get them done. Um, but I do think that the bar for investors continues to to rise based on what we're seeing. It's a it's a waterfall effect starting public companies and going right down to the private market. The other piece of the private market that we have haven't really spoken about is is one area that's been um, in healthcare that's been a real transformation, I would say, which is while equity has been harder to come by, many of our clients, 
particularly ones that are a later stage, have been turning and doing non-equity financing, everything from um, private debt and term loans to selling royalties and financing synthetic royalties. And so it kind of runs the spectrum of from a temporary financing vehicle, like a, like a, a, a debt deal, to other forms of permanent capital. And instead of equity, we're selling either a piece of that drug or, um, or a royalty that they have owed to them. And so because of this the, the length of time, and remember biotech started to fall out of favor well before the rest of the market, they, that peaked in the middle of 21. They've had a longer time to deal with trying to find different interesting solutions in the private market to be able to fill their coffers. And I think that's really what we've seen. And um, the, the, where I see it going forward, maybe, and this is, this I would say, semi-private, which is the convertible market, um, where, where we really, we haven't spoken to it in a while. Um, I may, maybe I was a little early in that prediction last year. But today, while we have rising rates and we have an equity market that's not quite ready for every issuer, uh, that looks tailor-made to me to have an increased issuance in the convertible market, which is, of course, a hybrid between the two. David, one thing I would just... Um add about the private market activity is I think very similar to what we saw in say early 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic where both VC and private equity hold investors had to focus on their portfolio first and hence weren't looking at new names. I think we're in a similar circumstance because of the different exogenous events. So that event was the pandemic, the event of interest rates, as you said, and inflation has created or trying to get ahead of inflation is what's created the, the period we're in today. And part of the problem is it's not just that the, the funds are concerned about, quote unquote, reaching and can they get to the right price if, you know, what's the right EBITDA for next year? And I don't want to overpay for that. And so I think some of that concern from 22 might be burning off and 23, we might start seeing buyers and sellers meet. I think a more basic issue has been going on, which is they got to worry about the portfolio. So the best stewards of capital recognize that even though it might be a great time to put capital to work as things are repricing, um, the the first job is make sure your current portfolio um, survives well, right? And that you are leaning to your portfolio companies as appropriate. Um, if there's situations where those balance sheets need to be um, strengthened, you better do that. Because if you think of it from a fund manager, again, whether it's a middle market fund, a larger fund, I'm on fund five, I want to go out and raise fund six. The most important thing is that you're being challenged right now as a, as a fund manager on the performance of your existings. And um, it's their obligation to deal with those first. So one of the things we're seeing is a lot more focus on recaps of existing portfolio companies. Some of the things that we might talk about in the public market, we're seeing for private market companies. If I've got a business that's in three areas, maybe they really should stick to two and we'll sell one of them. So part of the activity level we're seeing that's you know, percolating here is this question of, do I have the right balance sheet for the businesses I own? If I love the asset, rather than buy someone else's asset now, maybe I actually should go and re-up around that name. And that's created a significant increase in secondary transaction, in particular, in continuation funds. So if there's one theme that we've seen pick up in the last year, it's um, private equity funds looking to raise a continuation fund for the existings they want to own through the next cycle rather than selling it 
into a market that's challenging. So that's been a big pickup. Yeah, Larry, you might want to just touch a little bit more granular on the continuation funds just to just by way of background so people have that context. Sure. So so a continuation fund is usually, although not exclusively, but it's often set up as a one-time uh, special purpose vehicle to to purchase uh, a asset. Let's just use an example. It could be uh, a private equity fund has a number of assets in an existing fund. It's in the eighth year of that fund, let's just say. And um, the opportunity for that business continues to be pretty robust with a fund life of 10 years for your average fund, they either need to you know, begin to think about monetizing it or uh, they would have to do an extension. So what, what often might be the case is the best opportunity, particularly if some of your existing investors would rather get money out at this point rather than stay in longer, would be to um, consider selling the company. And when you begin the process of thinking about selling it, you also set up potential for a continuation vehicle to be the buyer of that. And the continuation vehicle would have your investors that choose to participate in that deal. It could be many of your existing investors from the current fund. It could be investors that might be coming to a future fund. It could be other third parties. But the point is that the manager gets to continue living with that asset, but with new owners who signed up for that opportunity. And that's really that's something that we didn't see very often three or four years ago. Uh, now it's 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 happening very often. And again, right. one of the reasons for that, David, is because in a market where it's hard to find financing to what Grant said before, and where it's hard to figure out the right price, if I know the assets so well as a manager, right, I'm very comfortable with uh, potentially continuing to manage an asset for the next five years, seven years, whatever it might be. So I set up a continuation vehicle to run that. Thanks, Larry. So let's shift gears a little bit and, and kind of shift from capital markets and focus on M&A for a bit. Just like the capital markets last year, obviously the M&A activity was pretty quiet last year as well. But some firms are out there forecasting a recovery in, in 2020, or sorry, 2023, excuse me. What areas are you seeing the most traction currently and what types of transactions are getting done in today's market? So I think that I'll start with what I just mentioned a second ago, which is I do believe that we're seeing a lot of would-be M&A transactions turn into continuation vehicles, particularly in the obviously in the private market. That's one theme. Um, so they still are considered a sale, but it's going from a fund that was managed by XYZ private equity uh, investors to another fund managed by them happens to be uh, a special purpose vehicle. Um, I think we're also seeing um, a significant amount of deal flow, and I think it'll pick up this year, which is a reallocation of assets, if not whole companies. So that's uh, trading of assets from one owner to another. Uh, think of that as in the most simple form. Uh, if I'm a real estate company and I've got hundreds of assets, I might decide to shrink my portfolio on the West Coast, sell that to a West Coast uh, entity that wants to get bigger in the West Coast. I haven't really sold the business. I've sold assets from one player to another. We're seeing that in healthcare in terms of uh, whether it be drug portfolios or, or individual names. Grant can certainly talk about that in the biotech spaces. Folks are thinking about different platforms that they might be trading. So the first thing is asset level activity tends to always pick up in challenging markets before whole company transactions. Um, a version of that in the public market 
is we're definitely seeing companies that had gone public in the last five years that possibly would be better off being restructured or even changing their, you know, their, their focus by going private again uh, and cleaning up in the private market. That could either be done directly, it could be done in some form of a sponsored spin. So either the whole company goes private or a portion of a public company gets acquired by a sponsor to be managed differently. And then the third is just being sold from public company to public company. And so we're certainly seeing you know, divisions uh, that may not make sense in the larger co public company uh, being sold either the private market or to another public company as they restructure their, their business mix. There, that wouldn't be an asset per se, but an actual company, a division being sold to another business. Thanks, Larry. So given you're always optimistic as a Jets fan, looking forward, what do you see as one or two bright spots that we can, you know, when we have another session in a few months, what were some of those bright spots that propelled us forward? So I'll start with, I'm not sure. Well, first of all, I'm glad you say I'm always optimistic as a Jet fan. Um, I, I, I feel like I just see things through green eye shades. But in terms of the the market, I, I do think that the Fed, as I started with earlier, the Fed has done a good job of setting expectations that, that they are going to be very uh, aggressive and continue to be as it relates to rates because they had to make up for the fact they were behind or perceived to be behind 18 months ago. I think that set the market up such that I think there will be a time, and I don't know if it's two months, four months, six months, eight months, but where um, it will become clear that they were able to get um, hopefully inflation under control. And in that scenario, I think that the positive move will be they will then be able to take a pause and uh, that will be a positive for the market overall. I, I think the market keeps trying to predict when that will happen. And we see these periods of, you know, uh, the, the, particularly the stock market, you know, trading particularly well and then retreating. I, I do think it's going to be hard to predict when that's going to be. So for someone who wants to, you know, say the bottom was put in, in November, December, whatever they're trying to say. In certain markets, we look back, if we look at healthcare, you know, we can look back and say that the market bottom might have been put in in certain parts of growth healthcare in uh, May or June of last year. I'm not ready to call the bottoms yet, but I do think that this, this perspective that we have, that we're in the seventh inning of the tightening cycle, maybe it's the eighth, we just can't predict when. I think that's the reason to be optimistic because I think that when it becomes clear that inflation continues to be getting tampered. Um, I think that the market will be favorable and deals will be able to get done in, with a much more um, stable environment. Because the one thing we didn't really discuss before, we've talked previously, is volatility is the enemy of deal activity. And so decreased volatility is the friend of activity. Maybe I'll just add on to that. I completely agree. And maybe I'll just take it from an issuance standpoint. I think the market is actually starting to react to news in a logical way or more what I see as a logical way. And so that started in healthcare last year. The beginning of last year, good data was, was being, you know, uh, stocks were going down. That stopped second half of last year and issuance went up. We're also seeing that now in the tech sector where those valuations are actually starting to rebound. And so growth is outperforming value right now at least for the time being. Maybe there's a bit of a short squeeze element to it, but nevertheless, you're starting to see some normalcy. 
what Larry said is absolutely true. We don't need the markets to be higher. We just need them to be stable. Some of our traders are telling us the reason why we're seeing this, this uptick in tech and in the NASDAQ is because it's been quiet on the, on the Fed front for the last couple of weeks. And just that level of quietness will let what, what things come back. And maybe the last thing I'm optimistic about is what, it is a little bit of a canary in the coal mine when I look at our ATM practice. These are investors that are coming to us asking to buy stock off of our programs. In Q4 and, and continuing to this year, we've seen large mutual funds come back to us asking for stock in these programs. I believe that could be the beginning of having them looking for more activity going forward. But I agree with Larry, I'm not going to be so bold as to protect the, you know, try to project the actual timing. We've covered a lot of ground today. I think we've pretty much exhausted all our time. I'm looking forward a few months down the line to kind of check in and see how things are progressing. Thanks for both of you joining us today. Larry, I, I'll let you finish off here. Well, David, let me first uh, thank you again for joining uh, me and Grant. We always enjoy our conversations with you. And let me thank uh, our listeners. Uh, we, we appreciate you and look forward to the next time we're together. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.